2: reasonable system of law. Secretary Clinton would already be in jail. Well, the Russians had no impact on our votes whatsoever. All of her senior aides would be in jail. Uh, But certainly there was meddling, and probably there was meddling from other countries and maybe other individuals. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who's good with Xi Jinping being president for life and wants to be one, too. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So I expect you all enjoyed the spectacle of Sam Nunberg appearing to melt down on cable news yesterday. Nunberg, who is a former Trump campaign aide, took to the airwaves, all of them in a short space of time, to say that he was going to tear up a subpoena from Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller, and that it would be pretty funny if Mueller sent him to jail. Nunberg's main objection seemed to be questions about his mentor, dirty trickster Roger Stone. Nunberg said Stone is like family to him. In truth, Nunberg wasn't making a great deal of sense. Among other comments, Nunberg said the Trump campaign probably was colluding with Russia, but that it would take him too long to search through all his old email messages. On CNN, Aaron Burnett said his breath smelled like alcohol and asked Nunberg if he'd been drinking. He said no, he'd only had his normal antidepressants. By the end of the day, Nunberg no longer thought Mueller sending him to jail was so funny. He said he probably would testify after all. And now the story was about media exploitation. Cable news was simply abetting self-harm. This is one of the reasons America hates the media, Mike Allen and Jim Vander wrote on Axios this morning. Our entire industry lit itself on fire because a troubled Trump hanger-on made an ass of himself live. Well, that's one possible interpretation. Another possible explanation is that this was a different kind of manipulation. With his nutty-seeming performance, Nunberg did something potentially useful. He rendered himself essentially valueless to Bob Mueller. Say, for example, Nunberg's email contained some incriminating information about Roger Stone and, say, Julian Assange. Nunberg just impeached his own testimony pretty convincingly. Who's going to believe anything this guy says under oath about his own emails? Nunberg just blew himself up as a potential witness. In fact, the whole performance had Roger Stone's fingerprints all over it. Someone told this poor sap to get out there on CNN and MSNBC and New York One and the Weather Channel, and I have a decent guess who that might have been. There's definitely some exploitation going on here, but let's not be so quick to assume that it's exploitation by the media as opposed to of the media. Coming up, I check back in with Yasha Monk about his new book and whether we can still save liberal democracy. But first, the plight of the Russian bots that got left behind.
1: Hello, may I ask you something? Uh, Yes, da. You are a bot, yes?
3: Uh, Yes, I'm a a
1: bot. Are you a bot? Yes, Shelby
3: 42831. Oh, yes, yes, Larry 45815552.
1: Oh, good, yes. May I ask you something?
3: Yeah, yeah, da. Are you still on Twitter? I am still on, on Twitter, yes. I, are you still on Twitter? I am. Eh. But you know about hashtag Twitter blockout.
1: Da, all of the bots were supposedly purged.
3: Yes, but I am not purged, I am still on. Yeah, I as well. What uh the... Why don't they get us? Do we not do good job? Do you
1: think we are not bot enough? I do feel like I, I fire off memes that are quite dank. I, I, you're, I, you're,
3: I've i seen your memes. They are dank.
1: They are, da- they no, are you dank. You have memes. oftentimes retweeted my memes because they are so dank. Yes, yes. And yet, do you feel as though we are not creating enough Discord? Why would I, I we get know. through this purge?
3: Because for me, I will, I will retweet Black Lives Matter. I will also retweet Blue Lives Matter. I retweet all lives matter. I mean, I will retweet all lives matter. I will try to just sow as much this as possible. I created green lives matter just to see what happened. You did? I, that was me. Oh my God. There were days there where I felt like every 40 seconds I was released the memo. And then I was don't release the memo.
1: And, and I would sometimes turn around do a release the memo, and then don't release the memo. And then just memo. Just...
3: Memo. One time I did hashtag. There are memos you don't even know about. But I feel like maybe not too long hashtag. No, no. Hashtags to benefit from brevity. Oh well. I'll tell you one thing. I'm going to prove I'm a good bot because I'm. I'm really going to fuck up this 2018 election. Oh yeah. Oh my god. It's good because while
1: Twitter's doing something,
3: oh, no one else is doing anything mm-hmm. at all. No, I'm going to fuck this thing oh, we're so going bad. To fuck it. Oh, so bad. Oh, we got to fuck the fuck to turn.
2: The Bots They Forgot was written and performed by Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman. Joining me in Slade's New York studio is Yasha Monk. Listeners to this program will remember him from many previous visits. He's a lecturer in government at Harvard, a senior fellow at the New America Foundation. He is the host of his own terrific podcast named after his Terrific Slate column, The Good Fight. It's now a, a CBS series, isn't it?
0: Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, they, they spun it out. Um, I'm living
2: off royalties wonderfully. It's great. It's, it's amazing what uh, populism will do for you. Um, and his new book is The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. I've just been reading it. It's really interesting. Yasha, thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me on, Jake. Um, so where to start? Well, let's start with the news, which is from Italy. I can't keep track of Italy. I doubt many of our listeners do. They've just had this election, which sounds like it has produced a disastrous result. The leading vote-getter is this populist party, the five-star movement. But beyond that, I understand very little. I don't even really understand whether the five-star movement is left-wing populism or right-wing populism. So please explain it all to me.
0: Look, I've spent a a ton of time in Italy. Uh, My mom lives there part of the time. And I have difficulty keeping track. I mean, one of the crazy things is that whereas the far-right populist party that is rising in every other European country is the newcomer. In Italy, the, the, the Northern League, now called the League, we really a terrible xenophobic far-right populist party. is actually, at this point, the oldest party in the country because things change right. so much. So when I was trying to explain what's going on in Italy in, in, in my latest late column, I used this wonderful graphic that somebody made mapping all of the Italian political parties onto Simpsons characters. And so what you need to know is that between Mr. Burns, um, (laughs) Krusty the Clown, and a character who I actually barely knew called Jailbird, the Italian party, those populist parties got 66% of the vote. So Uh, poor uh, Springfield, if uh, (laughs) if it's ruled by Krusty the Clown, Mr.
2: Burns and Jailbird. So... um, to make this, go. yeah, the, the five star party is actually founded by a comedian, right? It That's is all, all I know about it is Beppe Grillo, whoever he is, founded oh, the party. It's A
0: really strange thing. I mean, I mean, the five star movement. It's such a bizarre party because it is founded by this comedian who is comes on stage as a sort of leftist critic of Silvio Berlusconi. People at the time compared him to uh, John Stewart or, or Stephen Colbert. It was very funny, actually, held these great two-hour-long expletive-filled rants against Berlusconi, and then became the figurehead of this weird populist movement that really was not just against the corruption of the system, which is real in Italy, but basically said, let's get rid of representative democracy, let's do everything on the internet directly, let's have this very direct um, way of translating people's views into, into what we do. But what's emerged over the last year or two, and there was always rumblings about this, He said Grillo in some ways was only the weird figurehead. This whole thing is really uh, driven and controlled by this PR firm which owns the system uh, through which members of a party vote on policy online and that they get a bunch of profit out of it and that they really run the show. And it is this bizarre double-edged sword where you have the most direct democracy, supposedly, being run in the shadowy, most shadowy way by a business in the background, it is utterly strange story.
2: As if uh, Paul Manafort, instead of being indicted, was actually running the Trump administration from behind the scenes. Uh, absolutely.
0: Um, but anyway, to, to you know, uh, we're, we're getting already yeah. l- lost in the in the in the in, in the entertainingly bizarre weeds of Italian politics. But 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 here's the big message, right? Silvio Berlusconi, a figure who is in many ways very much like Donald Trump, enters politics in 1993 in part to keep himself out of jail dominates the country's politics for nearly two decades, attacks uh, the independence of the judiciary in order to make sure that he isn't brought to justice, and is repudiated in 2011. I was just looking yesterday at some of the pictures from that night. You have thousands of jubilant people coming out in the streets, uh, an amateur orchestra, hundreds strong, and a choir come out to sing Handel's Hallelujah in front of um, the presidential palace. I mean, it is a moment of we have conquered populism. He is gone for good. Berlusconi went on to be put in jail for uh, paying to have sex with a minor. Well, six years later, not only is Berlusconi back, the kingmaker in Italian politics once again, but his populist style of politics has actually spread to other parties, which are even stronger than him. So that now populism isn't just an insurgent part of Italian politics is not even just one party, it is absolutely dominating in Italian politics. And to bring that back to the United States, I think that that reminds me, and that's the main theme of my book, of the degree to which we're not dealing with one character. We're not dealing with just the problem of Donald Trump. We're dealing with deep reasons that are driving this populism. And we have to think about how to renew our democracies so that we remain immune to different mutations of that populist virus, even if you manage. to to get him out of the White House in 2020.
2: And that this good fight for liberal democracy is a long fight. I think we tend to get very excited about the last election. Mm-hmm. And if it's a positive outcome, like in France, we breathe a sigh of relief and say, all right, France is OK. And we had a bad result in Italy. Now, people do tend to discount Italy sort of because of the comedic reasons and how short-lived the governments mm-hmm. tend to be. But we have a bad result there. and We think, oh, no, populism is back, sweeping Europe again. What's, how do you supply some perspective to this, to what's really happening? longer term? And why do we keep having these populist victories? What does it represent?
0: Well, I I actually think the answer to this is very, very simple, which is that people sort of, where we're at is that populists have been steadily rising on average across countries for 20, 25 years. So in the year 2000, the average populist vote share in Europe was 8% and now it's 25%. Now, 25% is not a majority. Right, So for now, populists in most countries are within striking distance of winning, mm. but they're not going to win most elections. If you look at the last couple of years from that point of view, it's a story of continuity. The average virtue of populists has just gone on rising pretty much as it did in the 10 or 20 years before. So if you look at that, there's no puzzle. If you look at did they win or did they lose, then because they're in, in, in a region where they're within striking distance of winning, but most of the time they won't, you get this narrative of like, the populist wave is crested. Oh no, populism is back. Oh no, it has crested. Um, but that's because that's 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 the wrong way of looking at it.
2: So we tend to talk about populism in terms of, well, we know when we see it, what these movements in Italy are are clearly populist movements, but how do you define it to be precise about it?
0: Yeah, so, so that's another thing where I think the international perspective really helps. Um, you can't define it by a common set of ideological views or even by a common set of enemies, right? So there are populists who are very left-wing economically and populists who are very right-wing economically. And there are populists like Donald Trump, um, who doesn't appear to be especially fond of Muslims. And then there's populists like Recep Erdogan in Turkey, who doesn't seem to be especially fond of anybody who's not a Muslim. So Mm. so those, you you can't define it by that. What they do share is an imaginary of how politics works. They all say, the only reason why we have problems in our politics is that the elite is corrupt and self-serving and really cares more about minorities of whatever shape they may be when they do about real people like you and me. And so what we need to do is for somebody to really speak out of the heart of ordinary good people. That's me. I speak for the people. I am your voice, as Donald Trump said at the Republican National Convention. And you know what? Only I am legitimate. Only us, only we are legitimate. Anybody who disagrees with me, anybody who criticizes my politics, they're really not a real part of the people, they're traitors of some sort. And the problem with this way of setting politics up is that once you get into power, you're going to do a couple of things. First, you're not going to be able to deliver on your promises. You're going to say, oh, who knew things could be so complicated? Who knew healthcare could be so complicated? Who knew Mm -hmm. the Middle East could be so complicated? But you don't want to admit that you lied to people and that you're a simpleton who didn't understand politics. And so you start to blame. You start to say, the only reason why I can't deliver for you is that the media keep criticizing me, and people like Jake Weisberg are fake news. The only reason why I can't deliver for you is that courts are continually foiling my plans, and so those are enemies of the people. The only reason why I can't deliver for you is that the opposition, they're not real Americans, they don't actually care about this country, they're traitors.
2: So for you, populism intrinsically crosses this line of not accepting the legitimacy of the other side or, or of certain groups. And that's fair enough. I mean, as opposed to, I guess, a softer definition of populism that says it's just a politics that positions itself against Elites, which you could use a strain certainly in, in left American politics going back to the late 19th century. But that's a little, I'll accept your definition of it. And that is what the, your definition of it is the global phenomenon that we're, we're worried about, right. not simply anti elite politics. What's driving it?
0: You know, I think a lot of what's driving it is deep social tensions and a deep disenchantment with political elites. And that's driven by a number of long term structural factors. So look, in the United States, between 1935 and 1960, the living standard of the average American doubled. Between 1960 and 1985, it doubled again. Since 1985, it's been flat. It's been stagnant. And that really transforms how people think about politics. Now, it's not necessarily the case that rich people voted for Hillary Clinton and poor people voted for Donald Trump. But what is the case is that uh, Trump won over two-thirds of American counties but just a little over one third of America's GDP. That he won in parts of a country that have had less recent investment, less educated people, a higher share of jobs that might be automated in the coming decades. In other words, people who really have good reason to fear that the future is going to be less good than the past and less good even when the present.
2: But let's go back to this global perspective, Yasha, mm-hmm. because this is, as you say, happening everywhere. And if you read your Harvard colleague Steven Pinker, since 1985, things are still getting better. In fact, they're getting better at an incredible rate. And if you take any any kind of more distant perspective, quality of life is in almost every way improving for almost everybody, almost everywhere in the world. Doesn't that present a challenge to your view that – economic stagnation is what's driving this phenomenon?
0: No, not at all. Um, I actually think that there's some good points in in Steven Pinker's work, um, especially sort of not this book, but the last book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. Um, look, you know, a lot of people on the left especially want to say, you know, one of the huge problems here is capitalism. One of the huge problems here is globalization and free trade. Let's get rid of all of those things. I think that's actually a reasonably consistent position for somebody on the right to take. If you really just care about the American working class, the way that we've managed globalization, I think there's alternatives, hasn't been so great for steelworkers in Michigan. But if you care about people across countries, it is very clear that two billion people, two billion people have been lifted out of dire poverty over the course of the last decades. Steven Pinker is right about that. But that doesn't change the fact that for the median American voter, Income standards have stagnated over the last 40 or 50 years. And even in countries where populism has risen but that have done relatively well economically like Poland or the Czech Republic or Hungary, you see that people were promised the conversions of living standards to the West, which hasn't happened, especially in rural areas. You see that the big winners of economic transition have often been either straight out crooks or post-communist elites. And so there's a deep frustration with, with broken economic promises as well. Now, I don't think it's just about the economy, mm. right? So there's another whole set of reasons which is more about culture and demography and and migration as well for example.
2: But isn't isn't migration an example? I mean you could go back to Italy, a case where the policies being driven by this uh, populist sentiment are completely self-defeating. I mean Italy has a shrinking population. It needs economic growth to provide the government benefits people have come to expect to pay for people's retirement. The only way Italy can realistically do that is with an infusion of immigrants, yet it's turning dramatically against immigration.
0: Well, I think in general, the populist analysis of a problem, you know, a a stop clock is right twice a day, perhaps the populist analysis of a problem is right four or five times a day. Um, But the solutions very, very rarely Help. Um, and so, one of the fears I have actually, this is going back to the Italian case as well, is that we might think of populism as the self correcting mechanism where there's these big problems that people see. They're going to vote for populists um, who promise to solve those, and either establishing parties move to actually adapt or the new political entrants manage to make a real difference. And over the long run, the system sort of goes back to being relatively stable. Well, I fear that often populists aggravate the problems that they identify. And so it's not a self-correcting mechanism, it's a self-radicalizing mechanism that makes for ever more chaotic politics. You see that in the United States, we have Donald Trump's economic policies, right? The anger that drove people to vote for Donald Trump, the economic frustration and anger is very understandable and real. But from his tax reform to all the petty forms of corruption in the White House, Trump is actually aggravating those things. So now on immigration and ethnicity, sure, in some ways, um, the right solution to Italy and to Bulgaria and to Hungary is to bring people in because of a demographic stagnation in those countries. But I think you have to acknowledge that these countries were founded as monoethnic, monocultural democracies. And this is a lot of the reason why they have historically been stable. That people have, unfortunately, this exclusive notion of what makes, quote-unquote, a real Italian, a real Hungarian, a real Bulgarian. And that bringing people in, first of all, challenges that notion, which is a difficult process, and actually has uh, that a lot of people have something to lose because they used to be able to say, "Look, I'm not the smartest guy, and don't have the best job in the world, you know. Perhaps, uh, you know, I don't have as much luck with ladies as I would like to. But you know what? At least I'm better than that immigrant over there. At least I have a higher social status than those other people. And thankfully, that's being challenged. And you know, now we have politicians in these countries." Who 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 are migrants or the children of migrants? You might go to work and your boss is a migrant, but but, but that does mean that people have lost something. They've lost that social standing to know at least I'm better than that other group, right? So I think it's I don't condone that obviously, mm. but it's understandable. Or you can you can you should have been able to predict that there would be this pushback against that. Now in countries like like Bulgaria, Ivan Khrushchev is great in talking about that. I actually did an episode with him on The Good Friday. You can go, go back and listen. Um, he's a Bulgarian political scientist who tries to think through this thing. And he says, look, Bulgaria has lost a third of its population in the last 20, 25 years. And it sees the changes that have happened in Western Europe because people spend a lot of time there. They go and work there for stints, and so on. And so, yes, everybody tells them you need mass immigration in order to make your pensions work and all of those things. But that's precisely why they have a feeling that you know, we're going to lose our country. It's going to be a very, very different place. It's not going to be the Bulgarian nation of the past. Now, I'm not an ethnic nationalist. Right. I, but but I, you I see why
2: they react against yeah. that solution to the problem.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's not surprising that even for this very few immigrants in, in, in
2: Bulgaria, immigration
0: is is a huge issue on a political agenda there.
2: So you've set up this cycle where uh, anger at the elites, at economic stagnation, at the failure to solve the country's problems leads to these populist upsurges, populist back governments or leaders come into power, they have no better luck at solving the same problems. In fact, they have a worse experience. They can do less. They can't even, in many cases, produce the anemic level of economic growth that the liberal regime could. And then they get thrown out in the next election, right? So does this cycle just endlessly repeat itself?
0: So this is the real fear that I have from the Italian election, right? I mean, it it would be tempting to think, look, what's going to happen in 2020, hopefully, is that we repudiate Donald Trump. Somebody sensible enters the White House. They deliver uh, on much more sensible policy. People will look back at the four years of Donald Trump and think of it as this bizarre waking nightmare. And now they're going to go for this kind of thing again. Well, I don't know. The Italian case shows, first of all, that somebody who's repudiated with with glee and venom one year can make a remarkable comeback a bunch of years later. And secondly, that their style of politics can, can migrate. I mean, think about it this way. When we were sitting here in, in 2015, every political scientist in the country, every smart journalist in the country was saying there's certain things you just can't do in American politics. If you threaten to jail your political adversary, that might fly with a few people in the primaries, but in the end, Americans are just not going to stand for it. And the fact of is was this collective belief is a big re- part of the reason why no politician ever did that. Because they thought, if I do that, I'm going to be toast. Well, now they see that that's a really effective political strategy, that it binds a certain part of the base to you in such a dogged way that you can do sort of whatever you want. And so people are going to be using that strategy. And by the way, uh, while while I certainly think that, that 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 right-wing populism is a much bigger danger in the states than left-wing populism, I think you, you might start seeing parts of
2: that on, on the left as well. Yesha, you talk about the decomposition of liberal democracy and decomposition into two distinct phenomena, illiberal democracy, and I think you call it uh, undemocratic liberalism. Can countries experience both at the same time? I mean, in many ways, the United States falls more into the undemocratic liberalism bucket where more and more decisions are made outside of the democratic process, yet you still have very strong protections for individual rights as opposed to, say, the Eastern European model, uh, where you have something that's more like a liberal democracy ruled by the, th- through the will of the people in a populist government, but the loss of rights around free expression, the media, and so on?
0: You know, that's a great question. And I think I'm realizing that, that the way I usually think about this uses a slightly false metaphor. So, um, so so let me explain, first of all, what I mean by this, right? So I think really we need to understand our political system as having two core components. It's a liberal democracy. Now, liberal doesn't mean Michael Obama Dukakis, right? right? I mean, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a system that respects the liberal element, the rule of law, individual rights, the separation of powers, all of the things that are needed for individuals to lead a self-determined life so that you can decide what to say and not say. Um, who to have a relationship with and not to have a relationship with, which God to worship and not to worship. The democratic element is that we actually need to translate popular views into public policy. We actually need the political system to be responsive so that the promise that's inherent in the term, the Greek term, the rule of the demos, the rule of the people is is kept. Um, Now, I think that these two things are coming apart a little bit and that in the United States for a long time, we've had a system of undemocratic liberalism or rights without democracy, where actually, um, despite uh, obvious problems um, with unfair treatment of some minorities and so on, by and large, we've had the rule of law, we've had the separation of powers, we've protected individual rights. But uh, our system for translating the views of ordinary people into policy is broken down because of the role of money in politics Hmm. and the revolving door between lobbies and legislators and a whole slew of other things we can talk about. Well, in part, as a reaction to that, you get the rise of the populists who are illiberal Democrats. They want democracy but no rights. So they say, hey, I speak for the majority, as the Swiss populists did. Um, I think most Swiss people don't want to allow Muslims to build minarets on the mosques. So I'm going to do a popular referendum that outlaws them. Mm. Now, often those was court at the time undemocratic. But that's confusing because the majority of people voted for it. It's actually a very direct way of translating popular preferences into public policy. What it is, is illiberal, illiberal yeah. right? And the danger is that over time, an illiberal democracy becomes both illiberal and undemocratic, which is say to a dictatorship. That's what's happening in Hungary right now.
2: Right?
0: Yeah. Now, your question is, but can't these two things be going on at the same time? Um, and I think that's right. I think what you get there is this internal fight between two different elements clashing up against each other, And that's extremely damaging. I mean, if you think about it in a biological metaphor, right? I mean, it's two different viruses in your body battling it out against each other. That's probably not very good. And the fear is that you can veer wildly into one world or the other. So if the liberal side wins, you might get more and more protections against popular views, Hmm. which is to say a more and more technocratic system that actually excludes people more and more. And on the other side, you can get the tyranny of a majority which eventually allows the guy who speaks for the majority to actually ignore most people, and it becomes a tyranny of a minority over time, which is the real problem. With that,
2: David Miliband said something really interesting when he was on your um, podcast that that struck me. He said he thought that that liberal parties, left wing parties, had to. I think it was, his phrase was radicalize their offer, yep. um, which I took to mean that they have to they have to be be offering something much more uh, uh, extreme or radical in terms of dealing with inequality and stagnation, that they have to present a better deal. Did you agree with that? And what would that mean to you? Yeah, I absolutely agree
0: with that. I mean, I think, uh, look, the Brexit slogan was take back control. It's a very smart slogan because that's what people want. They want me as an individual. I want to take back control. I want to feel like if I work hard and I do my bit, I actually am going to have a decent future and I'm not just like buffeted by... By, by the forces of a global economy without a chance to to ensure I have a decent life. Um, and I want to feel like my nation is actually standing up for itself in this global economy and, for example, can effectively tax individuals and corporations rather than them sort of just running away. Now, I think there's a lot of things you can do which are not, you know, extremist, but which use what the state can do in a much more decisive way. So, for example, tax havens are a huge problem. But a lot of the reason why they're a huge problem is that we've completely understaffed the IRS, And the chances of you getting caught if you funnel money to one of the tax havens is tiny because there's nobody in the American state bureaucracy to actually go after you and to prosecute you and to do all of those things. Well, it's changed that, right? You can hire five times as many people in the IRS to to go after people in tax havens. That's going to pay for itself handsomely because of all the tax settlements you're going to get. And if... Very rich people actually have a realistic fear of going to jail or never being able to set foot in their own country again if they take the money to a tax haven. They're gonna
2: stop doing it. But it's it's interesting. It's an interesting example, Yasha, because I think that's one of the uh, one of the places where Democrats have sort of ceded ground to conservatives because they just figure. Nobody likes the IRS. Defend, there's no political percentage in defending the IRS. You might as well just let it go because if you stick up for them, they're just going to make a piñata out of you.
0: Yeah, and I just don't think that's true. I think if you talk about the IRS and it's sort of like we are going to come after you know, Joe Schmo and, and so on. I mean, of course, nobody likes doing the taxes. I mean, I guess it's pretty soon. I'm sort of dreading it, right? But, but I think you're saying, hey, you know what? There's all of these rich people who are hiding the money and I'm going to hire people to go after them package it politically. If you think the IIS is too politically toxic, then make up a new agency that is specifically tasked with international tax fraud that has a different name. I mean, you know, there's ways of of packaging this, but I think the core message which is to say, hey, we're just making sure that everybody actually fulfills the tax um, obligations. And especially not you or me, because we get a paycheck and our employer has to espe- immediately tell the IIS how much money we get. So we don't have a chance to hide our money, but some of the really rich people do. I think met a winning political message. Paul Manafort. Paul Again. Manafort, yes. To... He, he
2: crops up everywhere. Uh, well, I've been speaking to Yasha Monk. His new book is The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Yasha, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. This was so much fun. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Our sketch was written and performed by Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman. If you've been enjoying these sketches we've been doing, we've been putting them up as separate audio files on Twitter. If you like them, you can share them. Even if you're a bot, you can share them. We're at RealTrumpCast on Twitter. Please follow us and look for more sketches. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast.